Well, again, welcome. Last week, we introed a series on the book of Judges, Old Testament book. So we're going to dig in today. I was around 15 years old. I'd grown up in the church. I'd grown up going to youth group. And I had always heard this concept of God's will, God's will, God's will. What is God's will for your life, right? And to me, it seemed like a pinhole. And if you missed it, you were just basically a mess for the rest of your life, right? That's the, the concept I had. So it, kind of, it kind of freaked me out. So I went to a youth leader, a mentor of mine, and I asked him if he would show me what God's will is. And, uh, and this is what he told me. He said, you're not going to find God's will asking questions to me or going to church. You're only going to find God's will if you know what this says. And he proceeded to sit me at his dining room table week after week, opening up the pages of God's word and exploring what God's will and several other topics were. I've eaten hundreds of meals around that table now because that's my father-in-law. So I got a, I got a wife out of the deal. So I always tell people, you never know what you're going to get out of discipleship. I got a wife and Gino got me. So if you get a chance to meet my family, they're here today. Please take the opportunity to do that. But that stuck with me. I was young. Uh, I didn't know what God's will was. It seemed so like a, like a cloud. It didn't seem like it was anything I could really put my hands on. It was something that I thought I could see, but I'd never really be able to experience, right? At 15, 16 years old, I probably wouldn't have ever said it that way. But I needed someone to show me where God's will for my life could be found. And, and I think that's the purpose of the church. I really believe that's the purpose of the pulpit. I think the preaching ministry of a church exists to point people back to where we can find God's will for our lives. And we're only going to find it in his word. So we can find creative ways to communicate. But if we're not grounding all that stuff in the word of God, what are we doing? <laughs> What are we doing, right? My father-in-law and myself, neither of us have degrees hanging on our walls. We don't have accolades and awards. No one would probably write a book about us. But what I try to model off after him is that discipling people is just getting in the trenches with them and teaching each other what the Word of God says. So that's how I translate over to what I do on a Sunday morning. I'm not saying that because he's here. I had that in my notes before I knew he was able to stay on Sunday. I say that because we're introducing a book of the Bible as a series that we're going to go through. And it's because the, the reason I think it's so important is because if we're going to really know the heart of God, we have to know his word. We can't figure that out by, by reading one verse and saying, okay, here's what we're going to, I'm going to tell you a bunch of really cool things and then support it with a verse that sounds good. We want to dig into the Word of God and let Him communicate to us what's been there for thousands of years. And I've prayed through this process that whenever I try to come alongside it and study it, that whenever I have something to tell you, it partners well, it helps us all understand it better. But we're not going to know the heart of God if we don't know His Word. And that's why we're doing this. So we started this after a series where we went through God's best. We talked about God's best because it's outside of the character of God to give us anything but His best. When God gives us something, it is His best. 
We explored that for weeks leading up to Easter. We talked about redemption and forgiveness. We talked about a bunch of different topics. And we talked about those from the angle of God's best. So the book of Judges comes in off of the coattails of that one. And we ask the question, okay, so what does God's best look like when it's handed to humanity? And what does humanity do with it? When God gives an order, when God gives a command, when God gives a request, what does humanity do with that? When we know that God doesn't give us anything but his best, we partner in alongside that, what does that look like? And I think Judges gives us a really good glimpse of that. So last week we introed it. We looked into Psalm 90, which was written by Moses. We looked at all the different attributes of God that Moses recognized And basically what we see whenever we start this whole process of going through Judges is that Moses is saying in that psalm, what we dug into last week, is to say that God is a God worthy of committing our lives to. He's a God that's worthy of being committed to. So God's best series that went through, it explored God. We looked at God. This Judges series... It's going to maybe be a little bit more uncomfortable because it's going to look at us. I can't answer for you, but what I can say as I study through this book, I see a whole lot of what I don't like about myself in this book. And I'm not talking about like the thing I don't like when I look in the mirror. I'm talking about like character issues, the stuff that goes on in my head, the thoughts I get, the things that lead me to action, the things that go on in my heart, the sin that I struggle with or sometimes to my shame don't struggle with. I see that when I read. I see myself in the pages of these stories. We're going to read through it, and, and it's, going to, it's going to raise a lot of questions. You're going to hear a lot of names. You're going, to, you're going to see a lot of places. You're going to see a lot of horrendous things, and it might lead you to think things about God that aren't true. We're going to hope to dispel those. What I hope happens is we see a lot of ourselves that is true, and we see a lot about God that is true, and we let the truth of God overcome the truths of us and we come out better for it in the end that's the goal so we intro the book we really want to make this abundantly clear that god gave us this book of judges for us this was written thousands of years ago it was probably completed around the time that that david was the king which uh if, if, I, if I'm reading it correctly, would probably put this at around 1010 to 970 B.C. when the book was completed. We don't really know who wrote it. We just know that it was written sometime between Joshua dying and uh, the rise of Samuel and Saul, which it bookends that. If, I, mean, it's, it, I mean, it sits right in between those two bookends in the chronological order of the Bible. We see it sit right between the book of Joshua, and right before First and Second Samuel, which puts the kings on, this, on their thrones. So this is sort of the in-between phase. This is the transition phase. We can't afford to skip over it. We really can't afford to skip over any part of the Bible. We can't afford to just look at something and say that it's hard to understand or we don't know the historical context or whatever, so we'll just stick to the New Testament, Right? I'm just going to stick to Paul's letters because that's practical. Now, I'm not, I'm not dogging anybody reading God's word. You read it. But, man, the scriptures come alive when we read them completely. The scriptures come alive when we know the whole story of God. 
We might not find it easy to understand. We might not be able to pronounce all the names. No one's asking you to enter in a reading contest or pronunciation contest for these names. I'm probably going to chew these things up. I had to practice them. I'll probably still stutter and stammer a little bit this morning. But the book of Judges can be summed up by saying that it's a glimpse of what a whole culture looks like when it decides to live in the blessings provided to them by God, but not obey the God who provided them to them. Fully. Partial obedience. We'll give them some credit, right? We'll give ourselves some credit here. It's a, it's a glimpse, it looks at what a whole culture looks like when it decides to live in the blessings provided to them by God, but not obey them fully, not obey Him fully. So we're going to dig in a little bit, we're going to get closer to this. We're not going to do it quick, quickly. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go through this at a, at a reasonable pace, but we're not going to skip over much of it. So Judges starts off with an interesting writing style. We actually get two introductions to the book. It's kind of bizarre because you read through what we're going to read through today, and next week you read through what we're going to read through next week, and it's like, wait a second, that sounds like they couldn't decide, like they sent it to the editor, and the editor was like, I like both of those intros. Let's put them both in there. So what we're going to read today is really an intro to the book, but then starting at like verse 6 of chapter 2, it, it, it's, it's almost like it intros itself again. It tells us at the beginning, just real quick so I can show you, because uh, I'll probably forget to tell you this next week, and it's not really crucial, but it's just interesting. So at the beginning of chapter 1, we start with after the death of Joshua. Just lets us know Joshua died. Get to verse 6 of chapter 2, when Joshua dismissed the people, and it goes through, it basically says Joshua died. I'm like, yeah, you already told us that, Right? But there's significance to it, and we'll look into that ourselves. But if you aren't at Judges yet, turn there. It's on page 137 in the Bible in front of you. If you just want to use that one in the pouch, if you like that one, keep it. If you know someone who needs a Bible, take it with you and give it to them. We want to get God's Word in as many hands as possible, so take it and use it. Make it easier to find. Page 137 in that. We're going to read chapter 1, all of it. We're going to read the first five verses of chapter 2. I think it's important that we read God's Word together. I don't want to paraphrase it, and I don't want to put it on screen. I want you to look at your Bible. I want you to read it. I want you to feel the pages in your fingers or on your fingers as you swipe your screen. Okay? So, Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me. Then we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. That's part of the passages it's telling you about there. You know, that's not one we have on our fridge at our house, just so you know. All right, Toby, what's this week's verse? Adonai fled, they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and big toes. That's not one we tend to put in our memory plans. But it's in there nonetheless. Okay? 
So starting at verse, uh, just so you know, Adonai Bezek, Adonai is a, a word, uh, an affectionate word for father. So they're saying that he is the father of that tribe. He is like the leader of the tribe. That's what that's, that's, what that's referring to when they say Adonai Bezek, the Bezek people. Starting verse 7. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and in the Geb and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahaman and Tamai. From, from there, they went against the inhabitant of Debir. The, ne- the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. That's actually how I got Megan. They said, Hey, if you babysit our son, we'll give you our daughter. So that's how it worked out. So that's how it worked out. So, verse 13 And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arab. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and, <clears throat> and devoted it to the destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ascalon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called it name Luz. That is the name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out all the inhabitants of Beth Sheen in its villages, or Tanakh in its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Mahalol, So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or of Akzib, 
or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in, <clears throat> in Ajalon, and in Shelbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Now that's chapter 1. It's real fun, right? You tracking with me? Okay, a lot of names, a lot of places, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of do's, a lot of did-nots, right? It's vitally important to the story. Listen to this, starting at verse 1 in chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Okay, let's dig in, okay? So there's, there's a whole lot of names and places, a lot of things going on, there's a lot of moving parts, and maybe they don't make total sense to you. If I were to ask for a show of hands, which I'm not, so don't raise your hand. How many of you are just feel like your head's spinning a little bit listening to that and reading that? And you're, you're maybe questioning yourself, how does this have any kind of personal interpretation to my day-to-day life, right? If I read Philippians, it just makes sense. If I read the Psalms, it just makes sense. I don't know if there's ever been a Our Daily Bread pamphlet ever printed on the book of Judges. Maybe there has. So if you know that, you can correct me later if I'm wrong. So this is an important time to remind ourselves how important it is to read the Bible in context. You just pick up the Bible, open some pages like that game you played when you were a kid, and you'd spin the globe and close your eyes and stick your finger on it wherever it stopped. That's where you were going to live someday, right? Did anyone ever do that? Am I the only one that's done that? I was a weird kid, I guess. Okay. Thank you, Eric. You and I will be weird kids together. It's kind of like that's how our approach to the Bible is. If we just leaf through some pages and wherever we stop, that's where we're going to read. If that's how we do it and we don't try to contextually understand the whole word, then it's going to be confusing to us. and We're going to convince ourselves that that's God's fault, that he gave us a word that was incomprehensible. But that's not what he did. He gave us plenty of information to make this all make sense. We need to know what has happened before this moment for this moment to make complete sense to us. Now, notice how the book starts with letting us know that Joshua died. Okay? Joshua has died. 
I want us to, to let that sink in because we, we know in the biblical narrative that when it starts something off by saying someone had died, there, there is significant historical, there's, there's historical significance to that being told to us. When Isaiah tells us that he sees the vision of God and he says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Well, that's because when King Uzziah died, it was a major ordeal for the people. And there's a whole long story as to why. We see a benchmarker like this start the book. We should pay attention to it. Why is Joshua dying such a big deal? Well, let's go through the history of these people because I think if we can do that, it's going to make sense to us. I don't know about you. Maybe it won't be mind-blowing for you. But for me, when I first realized what I'm about to tell you, it blew my mind. The dots were always there. I never connected them. I remember sitting with my wife and telling her, can you believe this? And retelling her, and she just looked at me like, yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's been there. It's, it's always there. But I never connected the dots. So here's the history of these people. You go back to Genesis. God makes a promise in the Garden of Eden, right? We see people make babies. More population happens. We've, we stumble upon this guy named Abraham. A promise is given to Abraham that God will restore his people through the line of Abraham. The promises of God were not just to be rescued by God, even though if that was all he gave us, that was enough. He actually promised more than that. He promised to give land and freedom. Freedom from tyrannical governments and freedom from from sin, which was the most important one. He makes his promise to Abraham. And let's fast forward through Abraham's life. Abraham has a son. His name is, anyone know? Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Good job. Okay, little Bible quiz time. You don't have to like stand up real fast though, okay? Isaac has some sons. He has one son named Jacob. Jacob has several sons. He plays favorites for one of them, and that one, that one son's name was Joseph. That was a good guess. He plays favorites to Joseph. Joseph's the youngest. He gets a pretty coat, all that stuff, right? Joseph is having dreams. He has dreams and and visions from God, and he tells his brothers about these, and it it, it makes his brothers pretty upset because it makes them feel stupid, and it just reinforces the narrative of Joseph's life that he's better than them. So they sell their brother into slavery and tell tell their father that he was killed. Little did they know that this is really God's sovereignty is going to play out here. Joshua gets rescued, got, gets bought into, uh, into the slavery trade. He ends up working for the Pharaoh. His faithfulness gets him up to second in command of the Egyptian government, a slave. Part of the reason he ends up there is because of his dreams. He has a dream that there's going to be famine and there's going to be good times and there's going to be famine after that, right? So during the good times, he goes to the Pharaoh and says, we need to figure out a storage plan so that we can use the the fruitfulness of seven years of really good harvest to get us through the seven years of really bad. So Pharaoh puts him in charge of all of that. So now we're in seven years of bad and all of a sudden people have to come to the kingdom and ask the Pharaoh for food because they don't have anything. They don't have any resources. All the food is gone. But because Joseph obeyed God, there is storage in abundant supply that he can ration out to his people, right? It actually shows the king to be a benevolent king. In one day walks his brothers asking for food. And Joseph forgives them, not only forgives them, but gets permission from the Pharaoh to move his family into Egypt and live like the kings live. 
So now the people of Israel, which is Jacob's name, move into the land of Egypt and they live like the kings. They get all the benefits of living in Egypt. They get all the promises that come along with the people that have the wealth, right? Well, generations pass, people populate, generations die, new generations grow up, new pharaohs come on the scene, and all of a sudden one pharaoh comes on the scene. He doesn't care or even know about the promise anymore. He doesn't care about what has happened in the past. He's not a, he's not a history buff. He just looks out his window one day and realizes there's more Israelites, people of the line of Israel, people that came out of Jacob's line, who, if you track it back far enough, came from Abraham's line. There's way too many of them. There's more Israelites consuming our resources than Egyptians. I'm tired of it. We are no longer going to treat these people like they're Egyptians. I want some cool buildings built, and I don't want to pay for it, so these people are going to build me my buildings. Not only that, we're going to do some population control because I don't want any more Israelites in my kingdom. And in steps season of life in the Israelites' history where now they are no longer living in the abundance of the Egyptian government. They are living as slaves to Egypt. Generations pass. Moses comes on the scene. I think you probably know the story. Let my people go. Pharaoh relents, and the people come out of that again. They are rescued from the tyranny, and they go into the wilderness where they are being led by Moses. Moses has a protege that he's building into, who is Joshua. They step to the promised land, the land that God has offered them, the land that God has promised them. They have to fight for it, and Joshua is the one who leads them through these conquests. So the book starts because any time God has rescued his people, he's put a face to the person that got them there. And now, for the first time in the Israelites' history, They don't have a face to look to. They don't have one singular person. The land's been distributed to 12 different tribes, but they don't have a leader. So they look at the beginning of this book and they say, Joshua has died. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? That's the first question out of their mouth. We know we still have a very real enemy, Who's going to fight for us? Now, it can be seen as Judah being the next person, okay? So Judah, it says that that the Lord answers, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. But what you're talking about is the tribe of Judah in that moment. So all the tribes had to go against their own foes to win their own land. The land, the whole land of Canaan was theirs for the conquering. They were split up into 12 tribes, and they had to conquer the land of their 12 tribes. Now listen, the other thing that's so vitally important to this is that from the time they get released from the Pharaoh and walk into the wilderness, cross the Red Sea, all the big moments, right? Do you realize because of all the failure, because of all the sin, because of all the disobedience that has happened between that moment and the moment they step into the promised land that there's only two people that were ever out of of Egypt and stepping into the promised land. There's only two people that were there when they left Egypt, that are still there when they walk into the promised land. All the other people, because of their disobedience, had died. And God had told them, you will not enter the promised land. Your descendants will enter the promised land, but you won't. Moses was even one of those guys. 
He disobeyed God. He was able to stand on a mountain and look over into the promised land from a distance, but he wasn't ever allowed to enter into it. There's only two people that were with them when they left Egypt that are walking in. Their names are Joshua and Caleb. So when Joshua dies, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. They only have one piece left of their original history. And the longer you get away from your history, the more you tend to forget it. So Joshua's a leader. He took over from Moses. The book of Joshua picks up where Deuteronomy leaves off. Moses has died at the end of Deuteronomy. The people were looking for a new leader. In walks Joshua, right? The book of Joshua, it, it, it ends by saying Joshua died. And now Judges starts. They're looking for a new leader, right? The book of Joshua can be summed up something like this. Since God always keeps his promises, God's people can bravely obey and worship him. That was Joshua's heart, to lead his people to understand that God is who he says he is. And if we're going to win this thing, it's because God said we could win this thing. It's not because we have the best army. It's not because we have the best stuff. And it's not because we have the best soldiers or any of those things. It's because God said we would. The whole book of Joshua is that. So they have this faithful leader who has remembered the promises of God and at some level hasn't swayed from that because he was the one that came in to the promised land. Two people, generations, have come and gone. Joshua and Caleb are still alive. And they're sort of mounting this lead that says, no, 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 God can and should be trusted. So the whole heart of the book of Joshua is leading the people to say that God always keeps his promises. And because of that, he can always be bravely obeyed and worshipped. All of that leads us up to where we're at today. So to make this all make sense, we need to know why chapter 2, verse 1 through 5 have the tone that they have. Okay, so we read chapter 1. It might even be somewhat uh, tempting to give these people a pass, to be compassionate towards them. You know, they fought. They did the good thing. They didn't kill everybody. They didn't massacre everybody. They actually, they actually gave these people, they took their land because God promised them, but they didn't massacre everybody. They actually made them their slaves. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot of stuff in here that's not fun to talk about, but we could sort of give them a pass. We could read chapter 2, verses one Uh, through five and think that God is just some grumpy old man. That guy that's like, get off my lawn. Stop picking my blackberries. I'd have to sneak into that guy's yard and steal his blackberries when I was a kid. I'm not proud of it, but I did. Right? I think we view God like he's just some kind of grumpy old man. And you don't do what I say. Well, then I'm just going to yell at you. So if we pick up our Bibles, read Judges 1 through 2 verse 5, we, because we're human beings, because we're fallen human beings, are going to be prone to side with human beings, fallen human beings, because we can put ourselves in the place of them. And we could say, well, if I was on this conquest, like God would have given me strength, and God's a compassionate God. So I know that at one point he may have said this, that, or the other, but come on, I'm in this situation now, like... We, we can't cleanse the land. We can't clear the land. We can't completely obey here because, I mean, that was then. This is now. So what we're going to do is we're going to let these people live here, but we're going to make sure we give them hard and fast rules. And God comes in and says, you disobeyed. You did not do what I told you to do. So here's what you're going to get, exactly what you said you wanted. These people are going to live with you. 
They're going to bring their gods and their idols into your culture. And it's going to be a rub on your existence for the rest of your life. That's what you want? Fine. That's what you get. Now, I don't think God's tone is like mine right there, by the way. I think my tone is my tone. And I don't want to speak for God. When I read it, I, I, I can hear a God whose heart is broken for disobedience from his kids. People that have seen generations of God fulfilling his promises and coming through for them time and time and time again. So in Joshua, Joshua, they're not just commanded to take the land. They're commanded to completely own the land. They're taught to don't intermarry with these other cultures, these pagan religions, these religions that have abandoned me for their whole existence are living in this land that I promised you. If you want me to be your God, you have to make me the God of your land. It might not make complete sense to us because we always look at it contextually for what we live in right now. But we have to know the God that was trying to cleanse the land and make it his and own it again in this context. These were people that completely had abandoned God as a whole society. And they had moved in and taken God's people's land. So God says, don't intermarry with them. And you destroy all the gods of the people that you defeat. You get rid of every remnant of every idol of every God that you defeat. And if they don't obey him, they would end up living with idols and him. They would be living with people who believed in God and didn't believe in God adamantly. And he also knew, just like we do when we read this, that the Israelite people were a fickle people in their belief and faith in God. These are the same people that worship God. Moses goes up to the mountain and says, I'm going to meet with God. He's going to give us a new word. And they were like, yes, we can't wait. And Moses goes up on the mountain. They're like, gather the gold. We need to make a cow to worship. These people are fickle in their faith. And God knows it. So he tells Joshua, when you go into a land, you do not make yourself wealthy off of the riches of their sin. You leave that. Burn it. Burn their idols. Burn their gods. Put all that stuff away. Do not marry into their cultures. You own the land, me as your God. And you doing that faithfully will prove to the ones that are left that I am real, that I am who I say I am, that I have blessed you. That will turn the tide on their belief. Half-hearted obedience to God rarely leads to people believing in a whole, complete God. So the heart of God is not for us to partially obey or partially occupy the land in this context. So their actions show that even though they didn't fully reject God, they didn't fully accept Him either. So check this out. Verse 19. We're going to wrap up with this thought. Verse 19. And the Lord, chapter 1. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But listen. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. 
That might have been very easy to skirt over. I know the first time I read it, it was. It was a commentary that I read that drew my attention to the, to the hugeness of this verse, right? Judah was successful. He took the possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Do you know what just happened right there? Partial obedience followed by an excuse. Partial obedience followed by a defense for partial disobedience. Now, I'm a verbal processor. What that means is sometimes I'm, I'm expounding a thought as I'm saying it. This happens a lot in my little pep talks to my boys. One time I was talking to Isaiah, and I was correcting him on something he had said, and he's defending himself to me. And I looked him in the eye, and I said, Isaiah, defensive people are guilty people. And then I was like, how many times do I do that? When I find myself being defensive, it's because I'm trying to defend something that I did. And when I'm defensive, it's because I know somewhere in me that part of what I did was wrong. Part of what I said was wrong. It was partial right. I'll go all in on my defense though, right? We all do it. We are all in on our defense. I know that I only did one thing right out of the seven things you're confronting me on, but I'm going to defend myself because of that one. And I get defensive automatically. And I think that exposes my guilt faster than anything else does. So listen to the verse again with that in mind. And the Lord, listen to this. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country. Things look pretty good so far. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. I took the hill country, but God, when I got to the plain, they had iron chariots, like, Iron chariots. And the reason we can read past that is because it says iron chariots. And these people are mostly wearing sandals. That's it. So we'll give them a pass because we'll read the words iron chariot. It's a good defense, Judah. Nice job. You drew my attention away from the real, the real issue here. You made me feel like your disobedience was okay because your circumstances were so tough. Good job. I read verse 19 and skipped right to 20. I didn't even give it a second look. Did anyone else here do it? Anyone else read that and think, what? He made an excuse, that loser. Iron chariots, come on. Right? This same guy saw the walls of Jericho fall, so now that I actually think about it, I'm like, come on, dude. But listen to this. Fast forward. Fast forward to chapter 2. The angel of the Lord says, second, per, second part of verse 1, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? 
So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. What is this that you have done? You have not obeyed my voice. Here's what God is saying here back to people like Judah who are saying. Now, the list goes on from there. If you remember how many times whenever we get starting in the verse 27 in the first chapter where it says Manasseh did not, Ephraim did not, Zebulun did not, right? And it's not just one people group. It's like Zebulun went in and he did not defeat them or them or them and Actually, if I think about it, or them, them, or them either. So God comes on the scene and he says to his people, what is this you have done? I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you into this land that I swore to give you. I made the promise. I am faithful and you know it. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you'll make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Remember when I said that is what he's telling them. But here's where's the direct slap in the face to Judah's excuse in verse 19. He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. Judah says, I can't or I couldn't. And God looked back at him and said, you won't and you didn't. Let me ask you a question. Instead of Judah looking at him and saying, I couldn't, well, when, when Judah looks at God and says, I couldn't do it, and then he gives his defense as to why, God doesn't even listen to his defense. There's no word of iron chariots in what God says back to them. It doesn't scare him a bit. Iron chariots do not scare God. Judah looks at God and says, I couldn't. And God looks at him and says, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. And I don't know if you're like me, but I tend to think when we read through first chapter 1 and the first five verses of chapter 2, that right there is where we see ourselves in the story the most. How many times have we told God, I can't? And God looks back at us and says, you won't. I have proven myself faithful time and time and time again, and you will not obey. Please don't insult my holiness by telling me you couldn't. If you fast forward to a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, I'll just read it. You don't have to flip there. You can write it down and look at it later if you would like. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a verse that gets quoted often in a situation of trial, and rightfully so. Chapter 10, verse 13, Paul writes this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's tempting to read that and think that we have some kind of inner power that if we dig into it ourselves, we can muscle our way through anything and God's not going to put me in a situation where I can't win. That's not what it says. Anything that's written by Paul is written through the lens of the gospel and he's assuming in this situation that the Corinthian church has a clear understanding of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God will not bring you into a situation that he won't deliver you through through his power, not yours. And that verse is a, is, a, is a kick to the face of something like what Judah says in verse 
19 of chapter 1 when he says, we couldn't do it. They had iron chariots. And God says, you wouldn't do it. I already told you you won. I already told you you had this thing in the bag. You didn't believe me. You didn't trust me. So you know what? I told you not to make covenants with these people. You've done it. You've allowed them to live in your land. You see a little bit of God's heartbreak in this. When I was a kid, my dad never yelled at me. He probably should have, but he didn't. My dad's not a yeller. But here's whenever my heart broke, and it's whenever my dad let me know, not by saying it, but how he interacted with me, that my disobedience was heartbreaking to him. And my response in those moments was similar to what the people do here. Verse 4, chapter 2. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Why? Why? Because they knew they were wrong. They knew they were wrong. There's no more defense here. Do you see that? Nowhere in verse 4 does it say that when God finished spoken, Judah stands up and goes, uh, yeah, but real quick, God, those chariots, they, they were iron. I mean, you remember when I said that, right? No, there's no defense. There's no defensiveness in this moment. It's just softness and conviction because they knew they broke the heart of God with their disobedience, and now they know they have to live with it. They created a mess with their disobedience, and now they've got to live in it. That does not make God harsh. That makes Him just. That makes Him exactly who He says He is. Now, God will forgive our sins. He will forgive our mess, but He doesn't wake up. We don't wake up one morning in a brand new life. We have consequences for our sin in this world. God paid to conquer the sin. But we're still fallen and we live in a fallen world. And so the people of Israel are living in their disobedience. They're living in the consequence of their disobedience to a holy God. Partner what their actions were to what our actions are. And whatever those things are, whatever scenario that may be poked into your heart or into your head this morning, whatever got brought to your attention, those things that you know, you know God is calling for faithfulness in your life. And you are saying, no, I can't. And you can give a really good defense, a defense that other Christians will hear and read and look past because you have given them a really good defense. We skipped over verse 19. We went right into 20, right? We didn't, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing there weren't many people, if any, in the room that said, whoa, time out. Let's dig into 19 a little bit because he made a pretty big excuse there. See, that's how we interact with each other in the body. We make a really good excuse for our sin, so compelling that other people who claim to live in the same covenant, blood, relationship with Jesus that we do, hear our defense and give us a pass for our sin because we're so good with our words, but we can't fool God. We don't get to skip over it. And when we do life together in the body of Christ, we're going to stop and be the voice of God to one another because we are indwelled with the Spirit of God that is speaking to the Israel people. And He's saying, you're going to live with the consequences of your disobedience, but that does not change my love for you. And it's not that you couldn't obey, it's that you wouldn't obey. And when you don't obey God fully, you do not love God fully. 
I say you and I mean me. Why would God consistently shower a piece of garbage like me with his love? Because that's who he is. Since the garden, he has never once stopped pursuing and loving us in spite of our constant and consistent disobedience. Our half-hearted commitments to him, our half-hearted faith, our fearful faith. The moments where we can own it and say, I don't have enough faith, but I'm going to continue to be meek and scared anyway. The moments where we know we are walking down a sinful path and we say, you know what? I don't care. I have a really good reason for this. It leads us to think at times that God's love is reckless. And by our definitions, it is. You see, God is not reckless. Going back to something we talked about months and months ago, that is outside of the character bounds of who God is. He is not reckless. He is calculated. He is holy. He always knows what's going on. He knows you better than you know you. He's not reckless. We're reckless. We're reckless. So the reason we can say that God's love is reckless is because we're looking at our own recklessness. We're looking at how we treat God's love, and we know He loves us anyway. So I don't know what mess you carried in this place today, and you don't know what I carried in. But here's the truth. Whatever that mess is, I am called to obey the same God that you are called to obey for the exact same reasons. What I am called to obey in practically doing is going to look different than you. And where is going to look different than you. But the call to obey a holy God is our call. Collectively. That's why the body of Christ matters. That's why we do gather, to spur one another on in love and good deeds, to make sure that we're not listening to petty excuses or even really good ones. We're calling a spade a spade in each other's lives because that's what we do. We don't wait for the pastor to confront sin from the pulpit. We confront it in our living rooms, across the table with coffee, at breakfast meetings. We confront it. We love each other through it. And we say, no more excuses. You didn't obey God. You're not obeying God. Why don't you stop saying, I can't, and start saying, I will? You're going to say it differently than me. I'm going to say it differently than you, but in those moments, we still need to say it. God's love is unending. That's probably a better way of putting it. God's love is consistent and persistent. God's love does not quit. God's love is not dependent upon my behavior. He loves because that's who he is. He's faithful because that's who he is. Same God who has faithfully his people and commanded them to do hard things in his name. Did not do them completely. When you read through this and you think they just went into a village and, and conquered like seven cities, but they left one go because they were tired. And you look at that and like, you had one more to go. Your partial, partial obedience led to this judgment because you wouldn't conquer that one last place or that one last thing. But then I look at my own self 
And I think of all the times that I've stopped short of complete obedience because it's uncomfortable, because I don't want to, because it doesn't feel as good, whatever. Because the cost is too much. God's love is not dependent on our behavior. So half-hearted commitment to Him, though, is, is not true love. We have so much to learn from the people in the time of Judges. But the first thing we need to do coming out of gate is stop making excuses. Stop being defensive. We need to be bold. We need to be courageous. We even need to be reckless in our love of Jesus, in our love of God, because he sent his only son to come down in like manner of this this recklessness that we call it. He sent his son to die in our place for things that he did not do, for disobedience that he was not responsible for, for half-hearted commitments to his father that he didn't have. He was fully devoted, fully obedient, fully faithful. And yet he still took on our sins on the cross. He did that out of great love because of the promise that was made to these people and us the whole way through the word of God. So we need to be bold. We need to be courageous. We need to live out of this love, not because we desire to win points through our obedience, but because we love God so deeply and we trust him so much and we see his faithfulness, we have no other choice but to respond in like manner. God's character is on display through you. How is the world around you seeing it? God, we are grateful that you love us endlessly, that you are are a holy God who has chosen to step into the lives of your kids and not relent, not once. So when you examine our hearts here in this place today, May you see hearts soft and willing to obey in any and all circumstances to cast sin off because we know what it cost your son and to live in the light of eternity and stop making excuses but obey. Lord, we love you. Lord, as we just sit and reflect on a song, as we hear the words of truth put to music, I pray that we can just keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed, and stay focused for a few more minutes so we just hear your word. We can just think, we can process, we can figure out where we're at in this whole grand scope of obedience and love and faith. And give us your spirit so that when we come up against something that makes us tempted to say we can't, we tap into the power your spirit supplies us and we step into the I will.